I think suffice it to say the worship team got everybody warmed up this morning. They work very hard to be able to do that. They're fun to play with. They make my job a lot easier. All right, imagine there's a guy named Carl. If your name is Carl in here, there's no real association to you. I'm just picking on the name for no reason. Carl is on his couch on a stormy night. You know what that's like being in Maine, right? Comfortable, safe, warm, kind of inviting. You know, it's nice to be inside when all the mess is happening outside. I'm weird that way. It's like I don't really like bad weather, but as long as I get to be home and the fireplace is going, it's like, bring it on. And the next morning I wake up and go, but that's why I have a teenager. So now I enjoy him much more. But anyway, Carl is on his couch on a stormy night. His wife has gone out and uh, she's, you know, working her shift and everything. And he's in charge of the kids and he's at home on this stormy night and kind of just settles down for a, a football game. And he's relaxing. All the kids are in bed and it's quiet and it's peaceful. And all of a sudden, a really urgent... Who could be out on a night like this? So when Carl goes to the door and he looks outside, he sees this this man in this big kind of parka with the you know the the wookie fur going around the hood and everything, and and he's beating on the door and in on in his left hand he's got a tire iron, and he's beating on the door and Carl's going ah can I help you? And, and the guy inside's like I'm in trouble my my tires my tires dead you got to let me in, just like that. Really forceful, urgent. So Carl's thinking, you know, you know how it is. Sometimes you uh, try to catch up to the situation in your mind. You're not sure really what's going on and you're just trying to process it. So Carl says again, he's like, uh, what seems to be the trouble? And, and the guy just continues. Can't you hear me? I said I'm stranded out there. My car is flat. Let me in. But he's being awfully pushy for a guy who needs somebody's help. For a stranger who needs somebody's help. So under normal circumstances, perhaps with a politer uh, request or maybe tears or something, whatever's going on, Carl might have been a little bit more um, reactive to just open their, hey man, how can I help you? What's going on? But because of the strangeness of the situation, because of the tire iron in his hand, because of the forcefulness in his voice, Carl's thinking about his kids being inside in the safety of their home and he's going, I'm not really sure that this is the smartest thing for me to get to enter into. I, I don't know where this thing is going to go. There's this thing going on in Carl's mind where on one side, because he's a believer in Christ and because he's a compassionate person, he's going, this poor guy's out in the snow and, and, the, and the storm's just raging and everything. And maybe if the, if the problem is legit, I could be turning away somebody. You know, the scripture says if you even give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, it's like you've given it to Jesus himself. But then the responsible father and yes, safe kind of in his warm, kind of comfy home side of Carl says, I'm not sure if this is something I want to get involved in. Hey, uh, uh, pal, where's your car? Maybe I can call someone to come down. It's, It's down the road. Just take my word for it, man. Let me in. I need help. So Carl says, I'm sorry, buddy. I can't help you. I I don't know you. I don't know if your circumstances are legit. I just, I can't do it. I am very sorry. If you need me to call somebody, I'll do that, but I can't help you. And the guy goes away. So you can imagine Carl sitting on his couch, 
still trying to relax, still has the game on, fireplace is still going, kids never heard a, a peep of it. But in Carl's mind, he's going, did I just fail somebody in need? I don't know what to do in this circumstance. I don't know the right thing that Carl should have done. It's a made-up story, and I'm not going to tell you how it ends. So how do you like them apples? The reason why I end it there and just kind of dangle it out there for us to feel the tension is, isn't that life? Aren't we often confronted with, should I step in or should I stay? And there's all this logic, there's all this rationale, there's, there's kind of like these safety mechanisms that we've learned since we were kids that keep us alive, that sometimes keep us from engaging as well. And yet when we come to the scriptures, we see a passage, I'm just going to go to Romans 12 here to help set the tone for what we need to wrestle with this morning. Romans 12 verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and we'll end on this phrase, practicing hospitality. The reason why I want to end there is because it's really sort of where we left off several months ago in 1 Timothy 3. We're in the Christmas season, and, and rest assured we'll talk about Christmassy things this morning. But months ago, we were in a pattern of once a month going into 1 Timothy 3 to look at what makes leadership in the church good leadership. What does God require of his leaders? And the next thing that God has on his list is hospitality. So as I'm thinking to myself, okay, Lord, do you want me to pick up where we left off and talk about hospitality, but we're in the Christmas season. And then I got to thinking to myself, you know, Mary and Joseph ran into the same exact situation. Mary and Joseph, as the scripture says, were turned away at the end. Now, if you do a little bit of digging into biblical history, because the scriptures don't have a lot to say about the actual timeline of events. And some uh, gospel accounts give it a little bit more details where other gospel accounts decided that detail wasn't going to be something that writer was going to include. He was going to move on to something else. It's not a contradiction. It's just one reporter saw it one way. The other reporter saw other events happening at the same time, and they chose to write down based on what the Holy Spirit was leading them to write. So if you look into some biblical history and you see some of the circumstances, someone will probably attempt to undo the beautiful little manger scene here where we picture it sort of semi-outdoors and there's sheep going, you know, and all the smells and all that kind of stuff and everything going on. Others, uh, other writers will kind of steer us away from that. If, did that actually go down? But there's not enough to know for sure. And so what I would like to do, if you'd allow me, is to use our traditional understanding of what happened with Mary and Joseph as she was ready to deliver Jesus. Because the details of what actually went down or looking into the historical record um, with the things that the scripture doesn't say, I don't think either add or take away from the content of our message this morning. But I just wanted to be clear that I don't want to just run with something that might be just legend or something that's handed down in history. We know that Mary and Joseph traveled and in traveling, she was very, very pregnant. And the scripture says that they ended up staying somewhere else because there was no room for them in the inn. And I'm only going to imagine how that scenario plays out because, again, like Carl on the couch, he has very logical reasons, perhaps, for saying there's no room here. 
Maybe the inn legitimately was totally jam-packed. Maybe the innkeeper saw this woman great with child and said, I don't do deliveries. Deliveries are bad for business. People are trying to sleep. Nobody needs to hear a woman trying to deliver a baby in the middle of the night. And so who knows the myriad of reasons that could have compelled the end to say, I'm sorry. There's no opportunity for you here. You have to move on. But in hindsight, we look at this and say, oh, the innkeeper, somebody missed an opportunity here. If they had only seen 2000 years of history sort of in a crystal ball, they probably would have said, you mean this is going to happen here at my inn? I'd love to take the opportunity to be a part of this. I know we don't do deliveries here. We'll figure it out. But this is Jesus this is the coming savior. No, but they didn't have that perspective. And why is that? Do you think do you think they were terribly unhospitable? You think they were rude people? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the reason why I started with Carl's story is because maybe you and I can relate to Carl's thinking. Maybe you and I can relate to sort of the logic that goes in to turning away an opportunity to be a blessing to somebody else. And please don't, under, please, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that logic gives us an excuse, but it is the real world where we wrestle. God... You seem to be leading my spirit to do this thing. Romans 12 is calling me as your child, God, to be hospitable, to be caring for one another, to be known for giving my life and my resources to the people around me. But there's sometimes there are these things that block me from just freely giving that. That is our real world. Our natural defenses, the things that we were born with, the little mechanisms inside of us that keep us alive and often keep us safe make it very difficult to obey the calling of God in a lot of situations. But I believe that God, that God is calling us through his word to something that becomes more available, something that becomes more uh, risk-taking, uh, if you will. And we are called in hospi- hospitality. We are called to open up more than just our homes. Carl is being called to open more than just his front door and offer a phone but to think deeper with what the need really is. Being hospitable in our our, uh, way of thinking is often like we make a meal for somebody or we, we give them a room for a night or something like that. And all of those things are included and they are implied in what is meant to be biblically hospitable, but it goes even deeper than that. We have to be honest with the things that the little roadblocks blocks that stand in our way that keep us from just opening our front door, that just keep us from uh, cooking a meal or letting someone use the spare bedroom or those kinds of things, because things are at stake if we wanted to be hospitable. Our material possessions are in question. We open up our, our world, so to speak, to things that, that cost us. You know, Jesus even said in the scriptures, he, uh, you've probably heard this over and over again, but Jesus spoke more about money and wealth than he even did on heaven and hell. Because how we handle our money and the things that belong to us reveal more about where our kingdom lies than whether or not we claim to believe in a God who's going to send us to heaven or keep us from hell. You see, the words of those things don't matter as much as what we do with the things that are closest to us, the things that often mean the most to us. And that's why Jesus spoke so often on treasures. And he said, where your treasure lies, there will your heart be also. I know what you're getting to say, Pastor Brent. We've got to give it all away and wear brown robes. Live in isolation from everybody else. I know where you're going with this and I'm not. 
Our material possessions are often called into question. They are often put on the table to be yielded for the needs of others. And that's a difficult hurdle sometimes to overcome. We often carry fears and discomforts that keep us from just being completely available to the needs of others. Remember, Carl had a responsibility to be a good dad. He had a responsibility to make sure his children stayed safe, too. So angry man with a tire iron wasn't presenting the best opportunity to keep his children safe. So Carl had legitimate fears. He had legitimate discomfort with the situation. The innkeeper perhaps had legitimate fear and discomfort. I don't know the first thing about delivering a child. You can't bring your problem to me. I can't deal with this. We're slammed. We're booked. We're busy. I run a business here, not a hospital. You can hear all of the responses, but only in hindsight do we look at that as a poorly uh, run and poorly managed opportunity. We often have to give up our securities. It's inconvenient to let your guard down in front of others. Now, I I know you've never run into this, especially those of you that have raised little children. You have people come over to your domain, your space, your four walls that you're so familiar with and you feel so comfortable in. And so safe and and you invite, you know, friends over or family members or something like that. And you feel this little notch in you that you have to perform just a little bit more than if nobody was watching. I know none of you have felt this way at home, but I often feel this way. And inevitably, as you're raising little children, you're in the middle of a deep or adult conversation with people that actually are on the same wavelength. And potty training child number one or two comes down with the pants around the ankles and you're sit- and then instantly, even though everybody has experienced that and everybody gets that, you just sit there and go, oh, I can't believe it. I'm so sorry you had that, you know, and everything. And people are just like, you know, it's potty training. It's what you do with kids and they don't have any clue. There's no barriers there. But there's that first rush of, eh, I, I, you know, if, if you weren't here right now, we would just know how to deal with this and move on. But now all of a sudden, because you're here, we, we, are, we, just, we, we get on top of these things and we deal with this and everything. And I'm so sorry you had to see that. When we're at home just by ourselves doing our thing, it's comfortable. It's often safe. And the minute another set of eyeballs is laid on that scenario, it feels like performance. It feels like somehow we've got to put up airs. And this is what hospitality starts to chip away at. Hospitality starts to wear down our performance modes and starts to help us to understand that there's so much more being asked of us than just opening up our homes. But we have a world that we've clung to, that gives us safety and security. And true hospitality does this. True hospitality invades our world. But you see, as believers, we would rather have a religion that allows us to keep our involvement on our terms. You know what, pal? I know you need help, but if you just stay at the door, I can help you. Don't cross the threshold of my world. I'm not ready to let you in and take advantage of everything I've built here that keeps me safe and secure and peaceful. And oftentimes we involve our dedication to the Lord in the same way. Religion allows us to keep our involvement on our terms. We can reduce our, our activity or our belief slogans to bumper stickers and, and we, can, we can recite the worship songs and we know some things about the Bible, but we go to a place once a week to practice that, but the place never follows us home. Or the people that are a challenge in the place that we go to once a week never follow us home or we don't go to their home. 
the more we can keep our commitments within our comfort zones and only serve, and I'll put that in quotes, the people we like or the people that we can relate to, we're misrepresenting the gospel that we claim to live by. So I hope you can see that logical refusal, which is something hopefully most of us have, is a logic and a reason that says, I have an opportunity to say no to this, and probably for some very good reasons. But I hope that you can see that logical refusal to let God to mess up our little world creates a disconnection to our allegiance to Christ. If we say our lives have been transformed by Christ, then it will show in how much we're willing to let go of what we hold dearest. You see, this is why hospitality, I believe, is on the list for leaders. If, if Paul is saying to the church, you're going to go out and find leaders amongst you to lead the congregation, and hospitality is on that list of requirements, it's because hospitality is one of the great indicators of how on track we are with our faith. If you can give up your creature comforts for a time or in various circumstances, if you can do that for the good of somebody else, then you're probably moving to where God wants you to be. Why? Because it's closest to us. It becomes the consistency part of our life. A lot of people can perform. And haven't we seen so many people in church leadership throughout the decades and the people sometimes, unfortunately, on TV for all the world to see? We see a lot of great performances that are apparently leading these congregations closer to Christ only to find out that performance is not indicative of what they really believe. And there's this, there's this um, uh, hypocrisy that plays out, unfortunately, and we end up discovering that. And there are many, though, it's not just in the church, there are many who promote a passion for something that they can't back up when it's required of them. And we have to be careful not to fall into that same trap to say we believe something to say that Jesus is leading us. And then when the challenge hits, we're like, yeah, but not there. We see this all throughout. And I'll give you just a couple of quick examples. Um, many of you remember a man named Carl Sagan, who's a famous scientist and had his show. I think it was probably on PBS. Can I see some head shakes? Does anybody remember PBS? When I was young, I was I'm just I'm just barely old enough to remember him winding his time up. And I just remember him saying billions and billions of years ago and stuff. And so Carl Sagan is a committed evolutionist, a committed atheist. And he would show was what, the cosmos or something like that? Or I forget what it was. But um, Carl Sagan was the poster boy for things that could be explained in the universe without God. You don't need God to explain what's going on here. Now, because Carl Sagan was consistent to a point with his belief in evolution, he also believed that animals were like kin to us because we evolved from kin. And so he was, pardon the pun, he was rabidly opposed. See what I did? He was rabidly opposed to animal testing for things like science and research and medical cures and stuff because don't test on our cousins. You don't do that sort of thing. So Carl Sagan, being committed to that, also was a strong vocal advocate for animal testing until until Carl was diagnosed with myodysplasia, which is a rare blood disease. And the only shot that Carl had at prolonging his life, not even necessarily curing it, but prolonging his life, was to allow for an experimental bone marrow transplant that has been tested, you guessed it, on animals. So, 
keep in mind, we're not debating whether or not animals should be tested on. What we're talking about is the poster boy has said, I believe that God is not the creator of mankind, that we evolved from animals. And so in order to be consistent with that, animals are a cousin. And I strongly disagree to the point that I will fundraise, I will speak, I will do all these things against animal testing. And then they said, uh, Carl, you're sick. Here's your, here's your transplant option. And he says, uh, was it tested on animals? They said, yes. And he debated inside of himself, and then he accepted three treatments that prolonged his life a little bit. And then later on in a parade magazine or something, apparently he wrote and said, I still to this day remain deeply conflicted with my choice. But here I stand a little healthier than I was before. You see, it's not just the church that produces hypocrisy. I know we take a bad rap a lot of times. I just heard this little anecdote where people, uh, young people from France are feeling the movement of the jihad movement and they're getting all wrapped up. It's kind of like, you know, when, when college campuses get whipped up in a frenzy for protests. And so these young French jihadists go and move over to the Middle East because they're going to be authentic with it. And then they're starting to write home to mom and dad saying, our iPod Wi-Fi stuff stinks over here. I'm coming home. Committing to a cause where you're thinking you might lay down your life. But because your Wi-Fi is a little sketchy, you're going to come home. I want to be famous for a little bumper sticker, okay? I want to just make a little statement, and probably the reason why I haven't catched on is because it doesn't make a lot of sense. But I, to me, it does. So I'm going to test it on you because I believe in that kind of thing. I believe in people testing. <clears throat> if I'm going to be famous for a statement, I want it to be this. Everybody has a cause until it hits home. Everybody can join a march. They can send money across the world. They can do all those things. And then the moment it costs you something at home, that's where the rubber meets the road. And you go, am I really that committed to this? And so often we fail. It's funny for us to, sometimes tragic for us to laugh at external examples of that. But hospitality, biblical hospitality, always costs us something. And what allows us to relate to the story of the innkeeper that turned Jesus away, what allows us to relate to Carl's circumstances as he's laying on his couch on a snowy evening, is that the arrival of Jesus is never convenient. He never comes in a safe manner or mode. He never comes at a predictable time. Jesus enters your world to radically transform everything, and he comes when he knows you're ready for him to arrive. And how uncomfortable is that? It would be great if Jesus just arrived as the little baby because we love little babies. We'll do anything for little babies. They're, they're just, they need us. They, they need us to rescue them. They need us to take care of them. Jesus for us does not arrive as a little helpless baby. He comes as a conquering king, a jealous God who does not share our hearts with anyone. All right, I want to put something to the test right now, okay? I want to talk about this idea of hospitality and what our barriers are. I want us to be honest amongst all of our friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to try a little experiment, and already you're starting to clench your chair. Where is he going with this? My point exactly. Let's just say right now, you're saying, okay, Pastor Brett, I know you're right. You've shown us in the scripture the very plain. You see, I didn't have to take a lot of theological buildup to say we need to be hospitable, right? It's there in plain writing and reading. And so it instantly hits us going, yeah, okay, we probably should do something about that. 
And so you're saying to me, I know you're right. I know that short church should be known for their hospitality. It should be our reputation that we reach out to the needy, that we take care of one another, that our reputation pours out from here along those lines. And I know that me personally, as I sit in my chair or as for me, as I'm speaking, standing on this platform here, I know that I should be known for my hospitality if I call myself a true Christian. So I'm glad you agree with me thus far. You're making my job easy. We hear every once in a while two different kinds of reports about the nature or the friendliness or the happiness of faith. There can be people that leave a visitor card that come here and say, the nicest church I've ever been in. I had four people nearly tackle me to get to know who I was and ask me what my name was and everything. And then we'll hear from people that have left and have been gone for a year and we'll say, by the way, how come you never came back? He said, "Um, I think we went for two years and hardly anybody ever said a word to me. And so you try to balance those two reports and instantly the leadership starts going, "Okay, what's our responsibility in this? It's a problem that needs to be fixed because we want every single person to feel like you could shake somebody's hand and smile. And that's not always going to be the case. We're people. We have logical, rational reasons sometimes for keeping our front door closed. Even though there are people around us that are kind of either they're banging violently saying, I have a need and a problem. You need to help me fix it. Or they could be just barely tapping and saying, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I know you're safe and quiet at home, but I really need your help. I notice that the scriptures don't differentiate between rich requests of the ones we take. Hospitality means, is there a need and can you provide some help to the need? So therefore react. And so. Uh, you know, like I said, leadership's thought about this. We've talked about it, praying about this. How do we, how are we known as a kind of church that engages with somebody that's new or something like that? And we don't know what the answer is. But I kind of want to prove a point here that it's a little difficult to do what we call ourselves to do. I'd like you all to stand for a moment. I know it's mid-sermon. This is so unorthodox. Try not to fall over. What I want us to do, and Ron, I I meant to give you a little heads up. You have a little background music, a little something jazzy, Christmassy or something. Um, We're going to take some time. Some of you have been in a church like this before, and you're like, I know where this is going. We're going to take some time to shake one another's hands. Now, there's a chance. There's a chance you may die. Just saying. There's also a chance that you're sitting or standing now next to somebody that you know that you've been seeing for weeks or months or years. Don't go the safe route. There's also a chance you're standing or being near somebody that you know, but it's awkward because you haven't, you don't remember their name. And a year ago they told you, and now you're like, hey, brother, welcome to my world. I said hi to five people this morning saying, have we met? And I expected every one of them to say, I've been coming here for two years. What's your problem? It's the way it goes. Rip off the band-aid. Get to know somebody for a few minutes. Somebody you don't know or can't remember their name. Don't just shake hands with your spouse or your cousin. Okay? I'll, I'll call you back when we're done. Well, that went too well. You guys really seem to enjoy that. All right. Did anybody need to be resuscitated off the floor? Okay. So it wasn't as brutal as we all imagined. I hope you understand the point. The point is that the act may be easy, but we allow our own barriers to keep us from doing something. I, I say it all the time. If you don't recognize somebody in this place 
there's a good chance they might be new or they don't know you too. I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy for me to look around and see somebody I don't recognize or I haven't met yet. So what we're thinking we could probably encourage people to do more is when you come in and when you sit, don't think, finally, I made it or this is for me or I hope they play my song this morning or something like that. Instead, think about, is everybody feeling welcome here this morning? And you be the part that helps open that door up. Again, we're talking about the most basic of things. We started off talking about something so dramatic, so scary, so uh, world invading, and then reducing it to something that really doesn't cost us anything, does it? Rationally speaking, we could have a barrier that says, yeah, this is stupid. It's superficial. I'm not necessarily being their best friend. I don't even know if they have like a financial need. I don't know if they have an emotional need or anything. We're just saying hi. We're just saying good morning. You could, you could explain that away and say, so why bother? It's awkward. I don't want them to think I'm freaky or weird, like, you know, we're roping them in as soon as they walk through the door. We opted years ago when we established a ministry that we call the welcoming ministry. We, we decided long ago, if we're going to chase people away for being too friendly and a little too much follow-up, that's a risk we were going to take rather than the opposite. We hope that you continue to join us in that. This is what I consider the entry point to hospitality. If faith isn't known as a friendly church, and I don't think all of the claims are warranted, I don't think all of the criticisms are just, I think we have a very friendly assembly here. But why would we just be happy with what we've got? Especially when the scriptures are calling us to be known for something more. Those other opportunities present themselves the more we get to know one another. I'm going to try to wrap up uh, two full pages here in about three minutes. So... Because I think you get the point. We're going to skip down to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, where the scripture says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I had to add that, right? Just when I had you hooked and you're thinking, all right, I can do this and everything, but afterwards I'm going to go off and wipe my hand off and say, oh, I can't really have to shake those people's hands. <laughs> Scripture says without complaint. What happens is we get known as a church that looks after one another's burdens. We have a confidence in knowing that where we assemble, where we worship, these people have my back if I need it. And then ultimately what ends up happening is the reputation outside these walls starts saying, you know, those people at faith, those evangelicals or these, those angelicals or however I'm supposed to pronounce their name, I don't even know how to say it. They, they look out for each other. I think maybe they'd look out for me too. But the calling that we've established here is something that trickles down. It's, it's intended to trickle down from leadership. 1 Timothy 3 says that you as a congregation find the leaders who will practice and exemplify of, of out of many things, hospitality as well. I don't know what that's supposed to look like in my life or in Pastor Bill's life or Pastor Matt's or Ron's or Ben's or any of the elders and things. I don't know specifically what each of us are being called to each and every moment. You might have an idea of what that's supposed to look like, but it may not be the right idea. We don't know. But can we put our finger on the pulse of hospitality and say that this church is uh, a selecting leaders who care about the needs of other people and are willing to open up their worlds a little bit 
to see that those people are taken care of. And in so doing, are we also kind of uh, fighting against what happens in so many churches is this stuffy leadership. I'm on the board and I make the decisions kind of thing. A a, a man, as, as First Timothy is saying, we're looking for in our leaders, a man who would sit on a board because he's got a position and he can make the judgments and all that kind of stuff, who doesn't open up his world to the needs of others, was only elected to a board and filling a position. He's not leading us towards the gospel. But we are so pleased and privileged, and I don't mean to just blow smoke at our elders and everything, but we are so pleased and privileged to have leaders that are in the trenches, that live amongst the people, that report back to us a certain burdens or needs or something, and they follow through and they, they contact you and they're available to you. And when the pastoral staff especially can't be because of the amount of people that come here and stuff, a lot of times our elders just pick up and fill in all the gaps. But it, it doesn't even stop there. There's what? Seven, six or seven of them. I always forget exactly how many. I'd have to go through the names and count them. There's no way they'd be able to oversee all the needs on such a personal level for five, six hundred adults coming to this church. And so it trickles down and it starts to reproduce itself so that you start to carry some of that burden as well and say, well, I don't need to keep pointing to the leadership and saying they're not doing it. Instead, they're trying to lead by example with their world and I'm going to lead by example in mine and it's going to, you know how it's supposed to play out. Our choices are this. We either practice hospitality or we demonstrate, here's a strong word, we demonstrate hostility. You say, well, wait a second, I'm not throwing stones at the Savior and I'm not spitting venom or anything like that. But that's, that's, uh, that's, that's more of a vitriol that I'm talking about. But hostility sometimes gets misrepresented because sometimes just being complacent or can't be bothered or unaware of the needs around us really is like the same as being hostile to the arrival of the Savior. And this is how it ties in to Christmas. The Savior of mankind arrived in a hostile environment. He came to a world that didn't want him. You think of all that he brought with him, what motivated him to come, the whole plan and the purpose of his arrival in the world said, not interested. If that isn't hostility, then I don't know what is. Even today, as people become more aware, you hear Pastor Bill say this all the time, if they knew who Jesus really was, according to the scriptures, they would reject him. The world's always out there saying, well, Jesus is cool. You know, we'll, t- we'll take Jesus. He's a good leader. He's a good example or he's a he's a he's a, a, a compassionate person or something like that. And so they put him with Mother Teresa and Gandhi and all these kinds of things. If the world really finds out who Jesus is, they say not interested. Doors closed. So you and I need to not be guilty of the same poster mentality that says, I love Jesus. I'll sing these songs every Sunday morning. Please don't let them shake my hand. I don't want to I don't want to get to know these people. Um, You know, somebody acting weird over here, a couple rows behind. I, I just don't want my world interrupted. I don't want it stirred up. It's not what I'm here for. We need to open more than just our homes. We need to open our entire world to say, Lord, who are you putting in my path to serve today? Amen. All right, let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, so much for the power of your word. I thank you for such a difficult calling. I I thank you, I guess, verbally, Lord, but knowing in my spirit that what you're calling me to is something deeper than I've allowed you to do in my life. So, Lord, I pray each and every one of us would, would explore what that next level is of availability to you. May you continue to lead. We thank you, Lord, for this loving con- congregation. 
We thank you for the generosity of this church and how much they give and how much they're mobilized to to minister to the needs of our community, how much they trust the leadership to do just that. But Lord, we cannot sit complacent. We cannot just enjoy the warmth of this building and the safety of our children's ministries and the, the joy of our songs. We need to have our world rocked every once in a while, Lord. So I pray you prepare our hearts to be available to move, to go even deeper. In Jesus' name we pray.